Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Welcome to Forbes Podcasts. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, a Forbes podcast produced by Fractal Recording. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a Forbes contributor covering blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and fintech. Thanks for tuning in. For today's episode, I'm speaking with Michael Casey, a senior advisor of the Digital Currency Initiative at MIT Media Lab, a position he began in July 2015 after spending 18 years at the Wall Street Journal, where he covered global, financial, and economic affairs. He's also written three books, including The Age of Cryptocurrency, which he co-authored with Wall Street Journal colleague Paul Vigna. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the show. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Your focus at MIT is to incubate projects that use blockchain technology in social impact projects in the developing world. Tell us what exactly that means and what you're working on. Okay, great. So um, it just it stems from the idea that uh, there really is, uh, we think, great potential for this technology to resolve um, some of the um, the needs, the the failings, if you like, uh, for uh, you know the governance of the financial system and the governance of our economy in in places like the developing world, and and it speaks specifically to the problem of, of financial inclusion, but but it could could also you know deal with other aspects in which uh, people are excluded from participating in in a broader way in in the global economy and in global society, and and whether or not. Um, by deploying technologies that allow them to uh, prove who they are, prove their assets, um, gain access to services that wouldn't otherwise be there, uh, whether or not we can we can sort of expand uh, that that sort of playing field, if you like, bring bring more people into the global economy. So it it, it deals with that, and we are you know, focused on a number of different regions of the world and a whole range of different use cases. Um, we're working with, uh, in a very early way with the, the, the government of Mexico to uh, try to figure out um, ways in which we could expand financial inclusion with this technology. Um, we're focusing on things like um, solar uh, energy and, and the deployment of de- de- uh, de- decentralized microgrids in developing world and, and figuring out ways in which we might be able to use the blockchain to bring high-level financing to to that kind of rollout in what are otherwise you know rather remote and uh, and um, off-grid places um, and you know just just generally we're looking quite extensively at the issue of identity um, and the construction of um, you know uh, personal data stores that can uh, be used in a way to to affirm credit scores or affirm people's uh, you know reputations and and how they may or may not reside in a blockchain environment and be able to you know establish concepts like digital identities or at least open the door to services that are being denied them. So it's a fairly broad range and and you know there's 
we're still in the process of, of figuring out pilots in, in special places, but we've got, you know, you know, potential locations to get going in Africa. And as I mentioned, Mexico. So yeah, we're kind of moving into the deployment phase now and it's, it's all very exciting. And when you talk about using blockchain technology to um, solve or foster financial inclusion, what does that look like um, in a world where you have more financial inclusion that's powered by blockchain technology for someone kind of on the ground? What what does their day to day look like? Right. So I think we can um, define this in um, a kind of a generic, broad sense, right? I mean, I think what it comes down to is uh, the fact that in under the current environment uh, with the you know what we might call the centralized trust model uh, it's really difficult for people to prove their assets and I use assets in a very broad sense here it might mean their property um, it might mean you know some other uh, like mobile asset but it can also mean the personal asset the data your reputation who you are and so Without that, uh, people have not been able to to gain access to um, all the kind of broad array of financial services that we take for granted in places where there is a more reliable registry and record keeping and reputation system for proving these things. So we're talking not just about whether or not I do or don't have a bank account, but also whether or not I can you know take my property, my home, and find a way to um, to get a mortgage on that, or we might be talking about warehouse receipts in uh, in places where farmers can you know deliver their corn to a warehouse, gain a receipt, but the banks don't trust whether or not that receipt has been duplicated, so they can't get a letter of credit and the classic piece of you know kind of working capital finance that small and medium enterprises would get in this in this environment. But it also is is this notion of being excluded because. Um, you know, I've got no way to prove that I'm actually a really good credit, that I that I actually, you know, pay my bills on time, that I uh, have a job, that I go, you know, because without uh, a formal record-keeping system for the payments that people make or the, you know, their employment history and so forth, there's just no way to create that kind of bundle of records. You can get attestations from somebody, but can we trust them? And so, you know, the idea that we might be able to take you know, the data that gets accumulated on mobile phones to do with people's day-to-day activities as well as their payment histories and so forth and develop a profile around that and then potentially place that into a provably uh, a provable environment that doesn't require some form of, of formal registry could could also help to open personal access to credit uh this is another question beyond beyond the idea of a mortgage this is actually about whether i myself can can gain credit so i think it covers a broad broad array of of concepts um and it but it just generally speaks to this idea that that you know not just in the developing world by the way there's lots of folks you know who are underbanked or have have no capacity to to participate fully in the financial system in the developed world as well. So this way of kind of establishing credit through your personal data, and I understand the details of how these systems work may not have been figured out, but is the idea that as you transact and pay people for services or, you know, pay bills on time or, you know, deliver goods that you say you're going to 
deliver that all of this is somehow collected via your phone and then that establishes your you know so-called credit or reputation or, or whatever i really don't think we need to be so um kind of uh, limiting in the way we define this yes the, the the clearly the mobile phone um you know and and potentially you know even the even richer data that's going to come from affordable smartphones in the future you know is a very very important tool in this process and there's a lot of work being done on how phones can be uh you know important vehicles for this process of data accumulation um and, and and just as an aside you know much of the important work that's being done in that space is all about how do we gather that information and protect it so that so that on the one hand uh we we deal with this privacy issue that is obviously so so such a great concern and specifically in the developed world about all the data that that companies are accumulating on us but on the other recognize that there's also this data deficiency that that these people have and so they want the data to be accumulated about them but how do we do that in a way that that, that restores power that gives them control and there's a lot of work to be done but but you know there's a view that the blockchain could be quite useful in this construct and so that's that's just one thing to think about but i don't think it's just about phones right um you know there's there's really interesting ideas being developed around webs of trust so you know and, and again that might be something that exists in a digital environment but it might mean that you also bring in attestations about a person from the kind of people that you that you deal with it might be an ngo that you uh visit on a regular basis or a clinic and somehow if we can incorporate the data from all of that activity and and recognize that some of that data is going to require an external human input but at least it's coming from an entity that we trust in some way and incorporate that into this sort of if you like bundle of information about the about the person all of that's pretty valuable as well and i think you know the the thing is how do we actually with the you know impressive big data and data uh, management systems that are being developed, create these bundles in in meaningful ways that allow people to to kind of you know, really take advantage of, uh, of of the opportunities that exist and 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 give some trusted relevance to to who they are. And what are the advantages of blockchain technology in this application over? existing systems you know obviously like in the u.s we have you know a fully functioning credit system but you know what is it about using this um in these developing countries that that makes it a better option right so i mean it comes back to this question about whether we trust the entity that's managing the data and it doesn't necessarily mean that um we that there's anything untoward about it uh but it's but it's really the 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 idea that um without the kind of infrastructure and 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 much of that really sometimes comes down to the rule of law right if there's if there's a uh at the end of the day we need to be able to prove to some judge that uh whatever has been said about us is uh, is accurate and you know if there's some break in it, it you know there, there's there's this there's this whole there are these layers of fiduciary duty that I just taken for granted as we enter, you know, we get a, a credit score from Experian or somebody that that Experian is doing this in a in a you know 
in a legitimate way and it is following some sort of set of procedures and, and the like. And if it weren't, that it could be sued and so forth, right? So it comes down to this notion of rule of law. If there's no rule of law, then you, you really have a trouble, have a lot of trouble in building all of those systems. So that's, that's one aspect of it. But it's, it's not even to say that even in the developed world, these systems necessarily, you know, as you put it, fully functioning. We, we have, uh, all sorts of inconsistencies, um, and, uh, you know, obviously data theft and, uh, and everything else that is, uh, you know, calls into question all the time, the reliability of, of the information that's accumulated about us or that we accumulate. Um, so it's, it's about, you know, being able to create some sort of infrastructure. And I'm sorry to be vague because it's, 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 there's so much work that still needs to be done on how this infrastructure works. But at the end of the day, the notion that we could create um, with the aid of encryption tools, um, you know, data repositories about ourselves that can reside in an environment that no one can tamper with, be it myself or, you know, another party, um, is a powerful concept because it means that I can now port that somewhere else. It becomes you know, something that I can point to externally from a, from a particular server and everybody can recognize that that pool of data, you know, has integrity because it hasn't been changed. Now, we need to, again, assume that the input of that data, whether it's from a s- smartphone or from an individual, is something we can trust. But those are issues that are separate from this. It's about the idea that the data retains its int- integrity if it resides in this blockchain. And I think that allows this sense of portability, this idea that I can carry this thing somewhere else. And one could imagine that the same, you know, uh, reputation token, if we want to call it that, that a person in a developing country uh, could could build around themselves in this blockchain could work in that develop with those developing countries' financial uh, institutions. But it might also, if they happen to go and move to some other place, work just as well there because it's it's based on an infrastructure that's not dependent upon you know, the location and, 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 and the particular institutions you're dealing with. So there's this portability, interoperability, uh, and permanence and trust that I think is, is really just intensified when you have uh, a decent, decentralized, distributed, and robust system that the blockchain potentially provides. So at this early stage in the technology, when there aren't established processes or standards for implementing or using blockchain, how do you decide which projects make the best bets? Um, well, actually, on that question in particular, the you know the infrastructure, I think we need to be pretty uh, agnostic around uh, which blockchains to use, which structures. I think we need to be dealing in testnet environments. We need to build modular and uh, flexible systems that... Uh, you know, could could exist uh, either in a private blockchain or you know, which is I think is most of our preferences into a fully decentralized public blockchain. Uh, you know, is that going to be Ethereum? Is it going to be Bitcoin? All those questions, you know, I think uh, are to be resolved. And so the the testing around that part of it, I think, needs to be done in a way that is is at a layer slightly above the protocol. Uh, it's not to say that there's an enormous amount of research that institutions like ours and others have to be doing. In fact, it's probably the most important work that needs to be done right now on developing developing that base layer protocol and making sure that, that they are robust and the smart contracts work and so forth. Um, but the other question, I think, other aspect of what you're saying, I think, is like wh- where do we take do these pilots and what are the, what are the places? Um, and I think it, it's, it's an interesting question because um, we need to, on the one hand, 
you know, deploy any, any pilot needs to be done in a, in a sort of contained environment. And so, you know, it's useful to think about places that have something of a, a functioning infrastructure already since, um, you know, it means there are fewer variables that can go wrong to distort the data that you're developing from your testing. Uh, and therefore you can, you know, locate and isolate the, the, the study that you're doing to a certain sort of smaller set. And so that sometimes means, you know, self-contained, relatively well-governed places um, and, you know, with minimal, you know, bureaucratic interference. Um, but there's this other aspect of it, like, you know, that, well, if you're going to a well-functioning, uh, you know, middle-level country to do your research, are you really proving this in the right setting? Um, I think generally the the thesis is that that that's the way to go, that you test something in a, in a stable setting and then you take it to a, a more difficult place in the field. Um, but the thing that's interesting about a lot of the questions we're pursuing is that I, I, I'm not so sure that there is a universality to the experience that comes from the blockchain because what it's trying to solve is, is a unique set of social problems. It's not really just fixing some technical issue. It's all about how do we imbue trust into the system. And since you have great cultural variety and you have great kind of experiential variety across the world, what works in one place just might not be relevant somewhere else. So, you know, I, 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 it may be that we're going to be doing pilots and tests all, constantly because we're literally having to define and, and deploy applications of the technology, you know, in different constructs in different places to suit them. So, you know, I, I do think there's, there's great value in um, trying to find ways to access some of the most problematic places uh, in some way, whether or not it's, it's like finding a little village that's, that's within that, that area and seeing, seeing if we can test it there, um, or, or whether or not it's, it's literally going out on a bigger scale, because only then will we truly know if, if, if we're really changing the way that people act and behave as a result of this technology. Um, so, you know, it's a bit of a mixed answer. I know that, that, you know, there's different ways to approach it, but I think, um, uh, at the end of the day, you know, clearly uh, there has to be a process of testing small and making and, and moving out to something big. Uh, but, um, you know, where and how we do it is kind of going to be based on, uh, on, I think, you know, on a case-by-case basis, to be honest. Yeah, I think a great example of what you're talking about there is um, there was a project that a company called Factum brokered with the Honduran government to pilot a land titling system on blockchain um, that initially generated a lot of fanfare, um, but I think it's since stalled. And then um, a few months ago, the Bitfury group announced that they were going to pilot a blockchain land titling system in Georgia, where a country that already has actually a quite a good land titling system. Um, and I, you know, wrote about uh, what, you know, their plans and they said, you know, exactly what you're saying, that choosing an environment that doesn't have other problems allows you to then just focus on the technology. Um, but of course, uh, you know, as you mentioned, then it does raise the question of, well, then will it really truly show what the impact is? But um, it does sound like, you know, MIT, I guess, has uh, come up with its own um, 
Well, we're, we're very much at the early phase of, of working these things out. We have a lot of interest from a lot of people to do all sorts of pilots in all sorts of places, and we're fairly, um, you know, cautious in, in where we do or don't uh, move forward. Um, you know, it's also a function of what students are most interested in because this is the difference between what we do and, say, somebody that's like a team of employees Ours is really, you know, uniquely research-based with a lot of student input. And so we need to find, you know, students who are passionate about things. And my job is partly to kind of, you know, put out there what's possible to, you know, work out arrangements that are, that, that work. But I don't have the liberty of, you know, just having a, st- a bunch of staff members that I can order around. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of need students' passion. And sometimes the passion lies in, in a place that's kind of difficult, but um, – you know, that might be the way to go. You know, it, it's, it's one of those interesting aspects of what we do. What is really great about MIT is that it's, it's very, you know, rich in resources and it has uh, a very well-established presence around the world already. We do have, you know, institutions right across India, for example, and, and, and in other parts of Asia and Africa that are, you know, uh, beachheads already, and have relationships with with uh, you know different parts of MIT. There's a whole host of different labs and different um, institutions that are focusing on development projects all around the world, and so that allows us, I think, to go into some of these more difficult places because you know we've got uh, that history and those relationships and a fuller understanding of what we're up against. And so, you know, that that that's the kind of counterpoint, if you like, to the, the, the problematic aspect of having such a variety of potential interests and, and opportunities uh, is that, you know, w- you know, there is a, there's kind of a well-established platform to come in on, you know, albeit that, that we're dealing with some very big unsolved questions. So let's switch tacks a little bit. You spent much of your early career reporting from places like Argentina and Indonesia. Um, I actually also lived in Indonesia around the same time as you did. Um, And so I'm very familiar with how difficult it was to use anything but cash uh, back then. (laughs) Were were you there uh, at the the heart of the crisis in 97? So you remember going into banks and seeing those huge piles of cash on like people would just wheel them around on chairs to it's like and massive bags filled with cash because the the currency had collapsed yes it was, yeah. it was quite an experience yeah yeah and i was actually being paid in us dollars so all of a sudden mm-hmm. I just remember that for me, it was like, whoa, like I can buy five times as many things as I could when I got here. But it was also, you know, a scary time. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, you know, and, and so like I, having lived through that, saw kind of the impact on um, Indonesians, you Mm -hmm. know, how the fact that their currency was constantly fluctuating affected them. Um, but I want to hear a little bit more about how your experiences living and working in countries with less than stable currencies led you to where you are today. Yeah, that's one of my pet topics. And not just, you know, it, it, it really, if I, and I think it's very useful for everybody to have some narrative about how they arrived at where they, where they are and why they do what they do. And I think all of us have some story. And for me, the kind of things that you just described in Indonesia, uh, which, which I did experience to, to some extent from a different perspective, but certainly I saw a lot of, of suffering. Um, but in addition to that, Argentina, which is a unique experience in itself, absolutely shaped um, my interest in this technology, the kind of reporting I was doing, and now my belief in in where it can be most effectively applied. In fact, in our book, we 
lift a lot of uh, uh, material from my experiences in Argentina to try to grapple with this core problem of trust. And so, you know, I, I look at look at Argentina and think, um, you know, it's it's a country that. And I have a love-hate relationship with it. And this is something I make, make clear in the book because and that love-hate relationship is actually quite telling to the point because in places that uh, have a failed kind of civil civic trust model where there's not good institutions by which society can build systems of trust in each other with strangers, what you get instead is a is a, a real concentration of trust amongst those who are closest to you. So you end up with very close friends and very close family. And, and, and as I say to people, the pe- pe- some of the people I love most in the world are my Argentine friends because I rely, they rely on each other. And I think it's a function of what happens when you have you know, a breakdown of these systems. So I have a love-hate. I love the people, but I hated the challenges of getting money in and out of the country, of the kind of random way in which, you know, these crises just come and go um, and the sort of the sheer inability to uh, rely on some sort of consistent sense of law because what happens when your currency keeps rising and falling and fluctuating and the government is trying to shut one hole and open up another one and is, is that the law keeps changing and the changing laws is, is extremely difficult to deal with and it just breeds you know corruption and crime and everywhere else because everyone's desperately trying to get around it. Um, so, you know, I had that experience uh, specifically in trying to get money out of large amount of money and i tell the story of that in the in the book because it's 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 harrowing um and you know this is the defining feature for a lot of argentines and it's absolutely no surprise whatsoever to me that one of the places that bitcoin has found significantly more traction than anywhere else is argentina because it speaks precisely to this problem um so i've um you know, I've often thought about that, and my wife is an anthropologist, and she worked with uh, the the Bolivian community in Buenos Aires, uh, and she was very interested in how they came to form their sense of identity, and that she found that uh, that it was interesting how the sense of of kind of Bolivian ethnic pride in Buenos Aires was tied directly to a place, a, a single street within uh, the, you know, the kind of slums of that area in which the, some woman 25 years, earlier, 25 years earlier had fought tooth and nail to get property rights recognized across that street. And so this street became the center of cultural life for Bolivia. It became the place where the schools are. It became the place where the businesses are, everything, because all of a sudden you could establish who you are and what you do because you could actually claim your title registry status there and not in the rest of the surrounding region in which most of the community lived. So I I was very interested in this issue of property title for some time and it led me to Hernando de Soto, who I got to know and work with in a number of books and things. And, you know, he's, I know you know Hernando as well, Lauren. He's like, it's a, um, you know, he's become a key player in in a lot of these ideas. I personally reached out to him and, and, uh, you know, got him to take an interest in the blockchain. And now, you know, it's been a defining aspect of what I wanted to do. So, um, you know, that, that series of experiences was absolutely fundamental. So, you know, when I was first writing about Bitcoin and writing about, about the book, it just, the light bulb went off in my head, you know, two, two years or so ago that, oh, wow, this, this actually could tackle the property registry problem that I was so obsessed with when I was living in Latin America. Um, 
and and since that, yeah, there's there's the Bitfury project in Georgia. There's which Hernando was involved in, and there's uh, there was Hernandez, and people talk about it all the time. So it's become you know a, 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 an integral part of my own journey, and uh, and I'm really happy that I now get a chance to actually you know work on on deli- potentially delivering on some of these solutions, and not just just writing about it as much as I you know, always loved and will continue to enjoy the process of writing and reporting. I loved hearing about that light bulb moment. Um, I want to hear more about what you, uh, how you first learned about cryptocurrency and blockchain and then, you know, what other light bulbs it, uh, set off for you. Yeah. Right. So, um, I, <laughs> I probably do what most, lots of journalists do, uh, did sort of when, they discovered Bitcoin and just went, what? What are you talking about? This is crazy. I, I was a, a currency reporter, uh, you know, and spent a lot of time writing about currencies, and the Eisentine peso being one of them. Um, you know, and so I came at Bitcoin from a currency perspective and a market perspective. I looked at this price of this thing that was soaring and just thought, wow, that's a tulip bubble. These are, these are crazy people. They've got no sense. There's no value to this thing. How on earth would you want it? How do you, how could you possibly have a currency that's, backed by a bunch of computers doing this strange mining thing. What's all that about? Uh, so I wrote a column about it. I, I dug a little bit more, and I think my column wasn't as bad as it, it could have been. And um, you know, I realized that there was some work, proof-of-work process that was relevant, but it still made very little sense to me. And, and what year was that? That was, um, that was actually fairly late in the process. It was in 2013. So it was my... my, okay. my um, you know, my discovery process is relatively quick by Bitcoin standards. And, um, you know, once I wrote it, I was invited out for dinner by some folks, uh, specifically Jeremy O'Leary from Circle and a, and a bunch of other, Barry Silbert was there and some others, uh, along with some other journalists, um, and to just like try to talk through what really was going on. And that was absolutely illuminating and enlightening. I, I, I started to see that this was a, something much bigger than a digital currency, that a digital currency represented something far more profound than the digitization of money, that it, that it, that it had everything to do with how we could construct a process of trust in a decentralized manner and, and why that was important. So I actually think I came to a realization about what money actually is at that point, uh, you know, that I hadn't fully understood. And, um, and, and from there, I, I, I just didn't look back. I, I wanted to write about it all the time. I went off to different conferences and, and everything else. So, I, you know, I, I, I actually thank Jeremy Allaire quite a lot for that. It was a very uh, formative experience for me. I, I'm so curious about this statement that you realized what money is for the first time because uh, you know, as a business journalist, you covered foreign exchange, fixed income, <laughs> global financial and economic issues. Um, what was it uh, that you suddenly realized and and why do you think that you hadn't realized it given all your years of experience covering, you know, financial <laughs> affairs? I think Milton Friedman once said something like, you know, if we all thought too much about what money actually is, it wouldn't work. Um, <laughs> and And I think that's one of the reasons why Anybody, whether it's journalists, bankers, I mean, everybody doesn't fully get it. Right? I don't say I get it now, but I think I have a much more profound understanding. It's it's an incredibly deep idea. Money is not the point. Is this, and this is this is the thing that I realize. I think we tend to somehow think of the 
money as a thing, uh, which is completely irrational, but we do. We think money is this this piece of paper in our in our wallet. Um, and then we somehow abstract from that and say, oh, and it's sitting in a bank somewhere. And of course, we hear about fractional reserve banking, but we think, whatever, it's still, it's, it's, it's something to do with this piece of paper. And that's the problem. If I can, you know, the bank has a, has a store of it and they share it with me and it all comes down to who's backing it with this piece of paper. And, and, um, you know, and then, and then you'll get a lot of, and then you, you obviously hear a lot from, from the gold bugs about how, oh, this is actually all wrong because we need to have a thing. We need to have gold behind it because that's the only way it could be anything. It was actually backed by something that's gold. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's some truth to this. There's some truth to this, this idea that we need, we obviously need scarcity in our, in our, in our currency. But, um, I didn't, I, you know, it wasn't until I started to think hard about the ledger and the notion about how the, actually money itself is a system. It's a social system for how we keep track of our debits to each other. So if you go right back to the early days of, uh, of, of currencies as they emerged, it was, you know, gift exchanges and how the various uh, debts that would just accumulate by virtue of the guy that killed the, you know, the, the the beast that shared it with somebody else who was able to share something else. And there's this, there's a series of sort of social debts and obligations that emerged. And in a more complex society became, we had to find a way to actually clear all of those debts. And that's, that's really the way to think about it. I think we think of bartering as being, you know, uh, as part of that process, but there's some sort of flaw in that logic. It's, it's actually more to do with this kind of big broad ledger that exists in our minds and is everywhere else. And it's, 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 it goes to the heart of what uh, human exchange it is, uh, human value. All these things get caught up in this, and there's culture and community and everything else. And so, you know, the more complex societies became, we needed to figure out more and more complex ways to uh, manage and clear those debts, and we settled on banks acting as our intermediaries and building fractional reserve systems and, and everything that goes right back to the Medici, and that's the system we have until today. So to think about... Um, Bitcoin as a solution to that became really interesting. It was like, wow, this is so we actually ha- can deal with this social ledger, this broad based notion of how we exchange our collective debts to each other and understand all of those transfers um, in a decentralized way. So, you know, it, it's kind of important to come to terms with that before you can confront something as, as foreign and strange as Bitcoin. Uh, but I do think that, you know, whether by design or not, uh, the, the kind of collective ignorance about what it actually is, um, has been somewhat useful. It's obviously been pretty powerful to people to be able to, to dupe others and, and build these, these models that I think have been pretty destructive over over the centuries. Um, but at the same time, you know, living the myth, the kind of collective myth that, that, that this, this piece of paper somehow has value, um, is, is a critical part of its function, right? I mean, there is no inherent value in a piece of paper, uh, but there is great value in the collective understanding that once we transfer that piece of paper to each other, we've all kind of collectively acknowledged that a debt has passed from me to you. That's what's powerful about it. And, uh, and if you think too much about it, as Milton Friedman said, maybe it won't work. So anyway, I hope that's just, that doesn't that answers your question specifically, but it's, it's certainly a fun one to contemplate and one that we did go to some lengths to discuss in our book. What I will so throw one uh, recommendation out is Felix Martin's book, um, 
uh, on money, I think it's called uh, an unauthorized biography, um, is brilliant for this. It really, really lays it all out fabulously. It was pretty useful uh, volume to use uh, when we were writing our book. Well, speaking of books, I actually also wanted to ask you about your thesis in The Unfair Trade. Mm. Um, I did not get a chance to read it, but, you know, I did some um, <laughs> searching on online to, to see what it was about. And it talked about, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, about how unbalanced government policies around the world have created perverse incentives that undermine the proper functioning of the global market. Yeah. Um, if Pretty you... Um, so I'm so curious, you know, if this is the view that you take when you look at blockchain or cryptocurrencies, do you believe that they could offer a solution to those types of problems? And if so, how? Yes, I do. Um, you know, it takes it to a much higher level than we're any in any position right now to, to contemplate seeing implemented. But yeah, if we imagined a world that had if not a single uh, unique decentralized digital currency as the reserve base, or it had a whole host of much more flexibly uh, traded and non-manipulatable domestic currencies or currencies that represented different corporate interests or, you know, human currencies. If, if our, we could either go to a world where, Bitcoin is the world's reserve currency and, and therefore, you know, acceptable. Or we could go to a complete opposite where there's just so many different digital currencies that, that we, it ceases to be anyone that dominates anymore. All of that would make for a very different world. Um, I basically, and it's a key thesis in the unfair trade, I basically believe that the, the rest of the world um, is, is, is basically given a pretty uh, bad run by the dominance of the dollar. And I think in the long run, it doesn't help the United States either. Um, basically, there is no such thing as independent monetary policy outside of almost anywhere, to be honest. I, I think that, you know, obviously the European Central Bank and, and uh, you know, the Bank of England and certainly, you know, uh, to, to up until now at least, the People's Bank of China uh, are able to, you know, manage their monetary affairs with some level of independence. But at the end of the day, if, if you know, 70% of the world's reserve are held in dollars and if 90% of, you know, any significant trade has to be triangulated through dollars, whatever happens, whatever the Fed does or doesn't do is going to be such an overwhelming determinant of what happens to your own monetary circumstances that it becomes sort of... Certainly, a less than complete set of tools, um, and once you move into emerging markets, it's you know, it's kind of pointless sometimes, right? I mean, what hope does uh, a tiny you know little country in Latin America or Africa have, or even that a middle-sized country in those countries have, at a time like now when the Fed is just you know and, and the ECB at the same time flooding enormous amounts of, of cheap money, the Bank of Japan as well, into the world? You don't really have a monetary policy, you, you know, you. You can, if the Fed were to actually raise rates by, you know, something like it used to in the past, 50 basis points or a full percentage points, the damage in emerging markets would be absolutely and utterly profound. I mean, it would just be just, just destructive beyond belief. So they can't in a way, although they do. The fact is the Fed thinks about the world from U.S. macro policy imperatives, because that's what its imperative is. It doesn't have any responsibility for the rest of the world. And yet it will do things and can do things that can be incredibly damaging to elsewhere. 
And it's not to say there's anything malicious about that. It's just the structure of the world we have. So I often wonder whether or not, you know, we should be talking to developing countries and saying, hey, just just forget about monetary policy, right? Um, use Bitcoin or peg your currency in some sophisticated way to, to something else and just, uh, just, just forget about your capacity to control it. And, and instead, you know, manage all of your economic risks with fiscal policy. Focus on, you know, countercyclical measures about where the taxes should and shouldn't be. And there's some really interesting things being done, by the way, by um, Laurent, Laurent Lamothe, who you and I met recently, uh, uh, Laura, when we were, you know, luckily over at, at Necker Island. And, you know, and how you could actually use uh, micro taxes on, on monetary payments and the like and, and to develop pools of revenue for these people. You know, what if that just became your tool for managing policy and you said, so I'm just going to take Bitcoin or so I'm going to take something else as our, as our base here. I'm just not going to worry about owning a, my own currency. It's a kind of a, a, a kind of a, a, an artifact of these independence notions that you have to have your own national currency to mean anything. Well, I actually think that's an incredibly dangerous thing to have in this world. So, you know, if I start to think about, you know, a, a broad future in which the volatility and the, in, you know, the imbalances that I highlighted in the unfair trade could be mitigated significantly, I think it very much would involve some sort of infrastructure along the lines of this digital currency world that, that Bitcoin has introduced to us. Wow, this is a, just such an interesting vision that you're painting here. So um, if we were to kind of follow your line of thinking, what do you think will uh, eventually happen or, or could eventually happen in terms of uh, cryptocurrencies being used to solve some of these issues? Well, one thing I've learned uh, from being at MIT Media Lab is that, you know, uh, uh, the way to view the world is to recognize the complexity and um, uncertainties and unpredictability to a degree of, of how this incredibly diverse interconnected concept of what you know our global economy actually is uh, functions. And so on that basis, it's hard to predict. Uh, and I don't think, I think it's a little dangerous to be, uh, to be predictive. And so I like to kind of talk a little bit about what ifs and uh, you know, scenarios that might play out rather than, than prediction. And I think there's some value in that. And so um, I, I think that I, my, my focus is on the countries that have the most important uh, status and the most to lose or gain in changing policies and changing the kind of structure of the global economic system and what they might do. So inevitably, you've got to look at China. Um, and you have to think about what China's interest is geopolitically, economically, and where it might think differently about um, a world that that would have a different base for its financial system. So China's not very open about what it does or does want to do with policy going forward. And so there's a lot of, you know, tea leaf reading that needs to go on. But um, I do think that they do want a world in which the dollar is not the world's reserve currency. And they'd love it if their exporters uh, could clear directly with whoever they are um, whoever their importers are, whoever their customers are in other parts of the world without having to triangulate their trade through, through New York or through you know, JP Morgan or some, some US bank. Um, and, and so I think that the, the development, for example, of something like you know, real-time trade settlement 
uh, between the Chinese renminbi and you know the Russian ruble or or something like that that's done in uh, across a decentralized blockchain like structure that where where you know money is transferred immediately uh, and there's an automatic clearance because of uh, you know whether it's a supply chain management system or a trade finance model that's built around this very robust trusted system uh, uh, with with you know all the transparency that comes with a blockchain environment then you end up with trade the dollars are removed from the trade equation uh, and and then that starts to beg the question about whether the dollar should be part of the reserve currency equation why would you you know you we hold it's 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 capital markets that matter most in terms of absolute volume for currencies and so that's why that you know that we can say that's why the dollar is the dollar because people use it to move capital back and forth but at the end of the day that is a function of the reality that the dollar is central to world trade so if you remove that smaller piece from the puzzle why do we need to start thinking about the dollar as the base currency for all capital movements and therefore why would governments need to hold reserves in dollars to protect their capital markets right so I, I think that the idea that China might lead the way in creating a uh, uh, a kind of a cryptocurrency or a blockchain-based real-time trade settlement system um, is one of the ways to think about how the whole dollar global economy, economy might unravel. And that sounds pretty scary, I think, to a lot of people who've built their own careers and their, and their systems, whether it's as politicians or as businessmen around the center of the dollar. But at the end of the day, it will be a much better world uh, because the forces of creativity and innovation and the sheer you know, complexity of, of opportunities that will come into the global economy with, with, with a world that's not beholden to this you know, restrictive centralized system is, um, is going to bring so many more benefits than, than, than losses in an aggregate way to everybody else. So it's a kind of a very scary but very exciting uh, proposition all at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I agree. This uh, is definitely um, kind of uh, more visionary thinking than than I've heard even in the course of my reporting. Um, but speaking of reporting, there's something that I've been very curious about, which is um, as a journalist covering an area, um, you know, there's a fine line that you need to walk where obviously you want to be involved enough that you understand the beat thoroughly and develop connections. But then you also need to stand back and you know, be impartial. Um, but what made you decide to cross that line and actually go work in the space? <laughs> Join the dark side. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, because I don't think in this case it is the dark side. Um, I, you know, it, it was a tough decision. I was a journalist for many, many, many years. I, you know, 18 years at Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal and total of about, I don't know, 21, something more than that. And it's showing my age here. Um, so it was tough, but um, you know, I could never have gone off and worked as a, a flack for a bank. I don't begrudge those who do, but it just was never going to be satisfying for me. Um, so I had to do something that I felt was uh, had a purpose, and, I, and, and so I, I, it was to me. It wasn't that hard because I really, really, really do believe that whether it's Bitcoin, the blockchain, or some other decentralized trust solution, is the next wave for for the global economy and the internet. That this is. This, this kind of idea, and I'm being very broad in the way I describe it here, but this kind of idea is the framework in which our future will be built. So to me, to get involved in that on the ground floor, it's just going to be exciting no matter what, right? So that's, that's the first thing. Um, second was, you know, I'm moving to an institution like MIT. So 
you know, <laughs> it, you can't get a better place to, to be involved in cutting edge research and be surrounded by very smart and very, very well intended people. Um, it's, it's an absolutely inspiring environment to be in. Um, and then the third is that, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I kind of feel like I'm still doing what I did. Um, you know, I was a columnist for quite some time to some, so I was always you know, trying to push an idea or push is probably too strong a word or less, but, but like I had an angle to much of what I was writing about in any case. Um, so I'm still writing, I'm still doing a lot of public speaking and, and I do these sorts of things, you know, podcasts and interviews and the like. And I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's part of what I saw as my role anyway, which is to build public awareness and, uh, and, and really hopefully inspire debate. I, I don't, I don't want to be, uh, uh, a pitch man. I'm not out there saying that, 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 you know, Bitcoin is everything. I'm not a maximalist of any idea. Right. But I, but I do think that, um, I want to uh, illuminate the possibilities and, uh, describe the potentialities and in the context, therefore spur debate and spur discussion and, and help to really build out, uh, this technology in a constructive way. So it's, it's, it's kind of a form of journalism or at least a form of journalism we're doing. And so it wasn't that, that, that bigger leap at the end of the day. Um, albeit, you know, a very different experience and, and one that I, um, you know, I've, I've had to take some getting used to. So I'm also very curious, uh, as you mentioned at MIT, you are privy to some of the more cutting edge thinking around blockchain and cryptocurrency. What has you most excited now? Oh, um, we're really approaching it from so many different angles that I, I, to be honest, um, it's hard to, to, to pick. And, and, and it's interesting. I think that, that one thing that's becoming clear is that there's sort of different, different layers of research that, that's going on. Right. So, so I think within the, the computer science community, um, there's uh, a lot of work being done around, um, core questions of identity, uh, and, um, uh, uh, anonymity, uh, how we protect privacy. Uh, some, some of these you know, big, big questions for cryptocurrencies going forward. And so the Enigma project that came out of the Media Lab is, is I think, going to be very important. Um, you know, people at MIT have also had some role in the Zcash project. Uh, and all of that's, you know, the, the, the cryptographers and the, the coders who I don't have as much connection to. But I, but I know and, and, and can grasp that, that, that being part of that process is going to be very, very important as we move forward. Um, and Michael, for our listeners who don't know what the Enigma project is or Zcash, can you explain those? Okay, so uh, and, and and I'm not again an expert, but I can I can just speak to the problem that that, that um, certainly Enigma is trying to tackle, and that is, um, you know, how might you allow for uh, uh, proof of uh, some fact um, and and feel absolutely confident in that without. Um, without knowing the pieces of it this is and then, and that matters for identity so so uh it, it uses something called homomorphic encryption which is basically to say you know i can get the totality of all this data but i don't I, if i don't know all the elements of it then there's a certain privacy that is uh afforded to to each of those elements and yet i can still gain proof by doing the computation on that total amount that you know, such and such a state has changed or, or such and such a, an assertion of, of, of a fact uh, is true, right? So that, that then becomes valuable for identity because and, and, and layering that into a blockchain environment becomes important because this idea is that, uh, you know, the blockchain is actually, certainly the Bitcoin blockchain, not necessarily 
uh, as an, an, an anonymous as people think it is, there's all sorts of ways to develop um, understandings of identity around a lot of the metadata that gets developed there. So maybe there are ways, and this is important for financial institutions, right? This is not just a we're not talking here about aiding uh, illicit drug traders and the like. It's it's really about how might we go about the business of conducting commerce uh, without showing our hands to everybody all the time. The economy needs a certain degree of anonymity and privacy to be able to function. So these are these are systems that are, that, that might allow us then to uh, have you know a set of participants on a ledger share information. Uh, to that ledger about their activity without actually exposing themselves, uh, and yet the yet the the constant validation and verification of the information is able to continue as it goes on, and then things like you know Zcash using these things like zero knowledge proofs, which I I, I don't know the details of Zcash that well, but I do know that it's an it's an alternative cryptocurrency to Bitcoin <coughs> that um, that really uh, does does mean that there's not as much information on the blockchain as currently exists in the Bitcoin environment. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons why that's, that's, that's a valuable thing. It, it raises interesting social questions as well. Uh, but, but these are all, I think, going to be very, very important as we move to the idea that we truly could replicate the notion of cash, which is an anonymous bearer instrument, into a digital environment. And these are really important questions going forward specifically, I think also especially for things like financial inclusion. So that's that. Um, on, the, on the other side, I, I, I'm, a, um, you know, I'm much more involved in business applications and, and the like. Um, and I'm really interested in securitization and uh, specifically how it might deal with um, solar energy. I think there's some very, very exciting things happening around the use of the blockchain in uh, decentralized distributed electricity grids and, and how the blockchain comes in as a kind of an administrator in a localized grid setting. Um, but then on top of that, how we might build abstracted claims on the generation capacity and the kind of relationships that emerge so that you could actually securitize them and, and build them into financing vehicles. And I think with smart contracts and lots of really powerful um you know, uh, transparency and visibility that comes in that environment, we could, we could actually create some, some real interesting, uh, securities that, that function just as well, or perhaps even better as much more high level securities, uh, that, that, that function in, in the capital markets that we could, you know, literally have the ability to, to enforce my claim, even on a small little investment somewhere. And that, that, starts to open up really interesting possibilities for how we would finance something as as seemingly difficult to bring financing to from the far, from a foreign setting as a distributed grid in a remote part of Cameroon right so these are th- those are the kind of really interesting questions to me in terms of the application side of it how do i you know how might we build securitization structures on top of this and we're certainly exploring some of those ideas well, this has been a fascinating discussion. Um, where can our listeners find more of your work or contact you in the future? Great. So I have a website of my own. Um, uh, so it, it's, it's michaeljcasey.com. Uh, so that's one place you can find my stuff. Um, and uh, at the moment, I haven't been doing a lot of, uh, of publishing as much as I'd like. Uh, there will be some things coming up pretty soon. I've got a piece coming up on O'Reilly Radar very soon about the Internet of Things and decentralized uh, you know, trust systems for that. 
Um, that'll also find its way onto my blog, which is connected to my website. Um, and then MIT Media Lab, uh, we will very, very soon be launching the long-awaited Digital Currency Initiative website, and people will finally get to see a long list of all the, the, the proposals we're doing. So that's also one for people to check out. So keep your eye out for that. But um, media.mit.edu is where you'll find Media Lab, and from there you'll be able to navigate eventually to the Digital Currency Initiative's website. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Laura. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. If you're interested in learning more about Michael, check out the show notes, which are available on my Forbes page, forbes.com slash sites slash Laura Shin. And if you like what you've been hearing, please review, rate, and subscribe to the show. Every rating and review helps. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.